Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and in the last episode we heard about the rise of the Crusaders' new enemy, Nur ad-Din, who in the 1140s and 50s was building a powerful Islamic state in northern Syria with Aleppo, Mosul, Edessa and Damascus under his control. This put a lot of pressure on the northern Crusaders, in particular their last surviving outpost in the north, which was the Principality of Antioch. Meanwhile in the south, the main Crusader state, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, was fighting back and had scored a major victory over the Egyptian Fatimid Caliphate with the capture of the great fortress of Ascalon. Before long, there would be a full-scale crusader invasion of Egypt, but before we get to that, there was an interlude in the north with Antioch where the Byzantines made one last attempt to bring the city under their control. If you remember, Antioch had been a great Byzantine city as late as 1084 when the Turks had captured it and the First Crusaders had then retaken it in 1098, but the Norman leader Beaumont had kept it for himself, and ever since then it had been a Crusader state. Now, in 1153, the young and headstrong princess of Antioch, Constance, had fallen in love with and married a dashing young French knight called Reynald of Châtillon, and in this episode we'll hear how he nearly caused a full-scale war with Byzantium, although this was to have very unexpected consequences. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In 1153, while Nur ad-Din's attention was fixed upon Damascus and while King Baldwin of Jerusalem and his army lay before the Egyptian fortress of Ascalon, the princess of Antioch, Constance, had decided her own destiny. Amongst the knights that followed King Louis of France to the Second Crusade was Reynald of Châtillon. He had no prospects in his own country, so he stayed behind in Palestine when the Crusaders returned home. There he took service under the young King Baldwin, whom he accompanied to Antioch in 1151. The widowed princess Constance soon took notice of him. He seems to have remained in her principality, no doubt in possession of some small fief, and her interest in him seems to have induced her to refuse the husband suggested for her by the king and the emperor. In the spring of 1153, she decided to marry him. Before she announced her intention, she asked permission of the king of Jerusalem, for he was official guardian of her state and the overlord of her bridegroom. King Baldwin of Jerusalem, knowing Reynald to be a brave soldier and above all thankful to be relieved of the responsibility for Antioch, made no difficulty. Therefore, the marriage took place and Reynald was installed as prince. However, it was not a popular match. Not only the great families of Antioch, but also the humblest subjects of the princess thought that she was degraded by giving herself to this upstart. It would also have been courteous and correct of Constance to have asked permission from the Byzantine Emperor Manuel. The news of the marriage was ill-received at the Byzantine capital in Constantinople, but the Emperor Manuel was at the moment involved in a campaign against the Seljuk Turks. He could not give practical expression to his 
anger, conscious of his rights, he therefore sent to Antioch, offering to recognize the new prince if the Franks of Antioch would fight for him against the Armenian prince Thoros, who the Byzantines also had as an enemy in Anatolia. He promised a money subsidy if the work were properly done. Reynald willingly complied. Imperial approval would strengthen him personally. Moreover, the Armenians had advanced into the district of Alexandretta near to Antioch, which the Franks claimed as part of their principality. After a short battle near Alexandretta, Reynald drove the Armenians back into Cilicia and he presented the reconquered country to the Order of the Temple. The Order took over Alexandretta and to protect its approaches reconstructed the castles of Gastun and Bagras which commanded the Syrian gates. Having secured the land that he wanted, Reynald then demanded payment from the Byzantine emperor, who refused it, pointing out that the main task, i.e. defeating the Armenians, had yet to be done. Reynald then completely changed his policy. He made peace with the Armenians, and while they attacked the few remaining Byzantine fortresses in Cilicia, he decided to lead an expedition against the rich island of Byzantine Cyprus. In the spring of 1156, he and the Armenian prince Thoros made a sudden landing on the island. Cyprus had been spared the wars and invasions that had troubled the Middle East during the last century. It was contented and prosperous under its Byzantine governors. Half a century before, Cypriot food parcels had done much to help the crusaders in the First Crusade when they lay starving at Antioch. And apart from occasional administrative disputes, relations between the crusaders and the Byzantine government had been friendly. As soon as he heard of Reynald's plan, King Baldwin of Jerusalem was deeply shocked and sent a hasty message to warn the island, but it was too late. Reinforcements could not be rushed there in time. The governor of the island was the Byzantine emperor's nephew, John Comnenus, and with him in the island was the distinguished Byzantine soldier, Michael Branas. When news came of the Frankish landing, Branas hurried with the island militia down to the coast and won a small initial victory. But the invaders were too numerous. They soon overpowered the Byzantine troops and captured him himself. And when John Comnenus came to his aid, he too was taken prisoner. The victorious Franks and Armenians then marched up and down the island, robbing and pillaging every building that they saw, churches and convents as well as shops and private houses. The crops were burnt, the herds of animals were rounded up together with all the population and driven down to the coast. The women were raped, children and folk too old to move had their throats cut. The murder and rapine was on a scale that the Huns or the Mongols might have envied. The nightmare lasted about three weeks. Then, hearing that a Byzantine fleet might be arriving, Reynald gave the order to leave. His ships were loaded up with booty. The herds and flocks of animals for which there was no room were sold back at a high price to their owners. Every Cypriot was forced to ransom himself, and there was no money left in the island for the purpose. So the Byzantine governor and Branas, together with the leading churchmen, the leading proprietors, and the leading merchants with all their families, were carried off to Antioch to remain in prison until the money should be forthcoming, except for some who were mutilated and sent in derision to Constantinople. The island of Cyprus never fully recovered 
from the devastation caused by Reynald and his Armenian allies. The earthquakes of 1157, which were severe in Cyprus, completed the misery. And in 1158, the Egyptians, whose fleet had not dared to venture into Cypriot waters for many decades, made some raids on the battered and defenceless island. But Reynald's shocking behaviour against fellow Christians would be his undoing, for not only was the Byzantine emperor outraged, but the king of Jerusalem was also furious, so much so that he sent an embassy in 1157 to Constantinople to express his disapproval of Reynald. Indeed, the approach actually resulted in a re-establishment of Byzantine relations with the Kingdom of Jerusalem when the Byzantine Emperor Manuel proposed a marriage alliance. After some negotiations, he offered his niece, Theodora, with a dowry of 100,000 golden coins and another 10,000 for wedding expenses and gifts worth 30,000 more. When his embassy returned, and Baldwin confirmed the terms of the marriage, the young Byzantine princess set out from Constantinople. She arrived at the city of Acre in September 1158 and travelled in state to Jerusalem. There she was married to the king by the patriarch Amory of Antioch, as the patriarch-elect of Jerusalem had not yet been confirmed by the Pope. Theodora was by all accounts very beautiful and very lovely, Baldwin was delighted and entranced by her and was a faithful husband, abandoning the easy morals of his bachelor days. Indeed, this marriage alliance was so successful that it opened a whole new chapter in Byzantine crusader relations, for the Emperor Manuel promised to join in an alliance with Baldwin against Nur ad-Din, and King Baldwin agreed that the Prince of Antioch, Reynald, should be humbled. In the autumn of 1158, the Byzantine emperor set out from Constantinople at the head of a large army heading for Antioch. First he marched to Cilicia, and while the main force followed slowly along the difficult coast road, he hurried ahead with a force of only 500 horsemen. So secret were his preparations and so quick his movements that no one in Cilicia knew of his coming. The Armenian prince Thoros was at Tarsus, suspecting nothing, when suddenly one day in late October, a Latin pilgrim whom he had entertained came rushing back to his court to tell him that he had seen Byzantine troops only a day Day's march away. But Thoros collected his family, his intimate friends, and his treasure and fled at once to the mountains. Next day, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel entered the Cilician Plain. While his brother in law Theodore Vatatsis occupied Tarsus, he moved on swiftly, and within a fortnight, all the Cilician cities, as far as Anazarbus, were in his power. But the Armenian Thoros himself still eluded him. While Byzantine detachments scoured the valleys, he fled from hilltop to hilltop and at last found refuge on a crag called Dadai, near the sources of the Sidnus River, whose ruins had been uninhabited for generations. Only his two most trusted servants knew where he lay hidden. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go.
The Byzantine emperor's arrival terrified Reynald. He knew that he could not resist the Byzantine army, and this knowledge actually saved him, for by making an immediate submission, he obtained far better terms than if he were defeated in battle. Gerard, bishop of Latakia, the most perspicacious of his counsellors, pointed out to him that the emperor's motive was prestige rather than conquest. So Reynald sent hastily to the Byzantine emperor Manuel, offering to surrender the citadel of Antioch to a Byzantine garrison. When his envoy was told that that was not enough, he himself put on the clothes of a beggar and hurried to the emperor's camp outside the walls of Mamistra. Envoys from all the neighbouring princes were arriving to greet the Byzantine emperor, indeed from Nuradin himself, from the Turkish-Danish Meds, from the king of Georgia, and even from the caliph of Baghdad. The emperor Manuel kept Reynald waiting. It seems that about this moment he received a message from the exiled patriarch Amory suggesting that Reynald should be brought before him in chains and be deposed. But it suited the emperor better to have him as a humble client at a solemn session with the Byzantine emperor seated enthroned in his great tent, his courtiers and the foreign ambassadors grouped around him, and the crack regiments of the army lining the approaches, Reynald made his submission. He and his followers walked barefoot and bareheaded through the town and out to the Byzantine camp. There he prostrated himself in the dust before the emperor, while all his men raised their hands in supplication. Many minutes passed before the Emperor Manuel deigned to notice him. Then pardon was accorded to him on three conditions. Whenever it was asked of him, he must hand his citadel over to the Byzantines, he must provide a contingent for the Byzantine army, and he must admit a Greek patriarch of Antioch instead of the Latin patriarch. Reynald swore to obey these terms. Then he was dismissed and sent back to Antioch. The news of Manuel's approach had brought King Baldwin of Jerusalem with his brother Amalric and the patriarch Amory hastening from the south. They arrived at Antioch soon after Reynald's return. King Baldwin was a little disappointed to hear of Reynald's pardon, for he wanted harsher punishment, and he wrote at once to the Emperor Manuel to beg for an audience. Manuel hesitated, apparently, because he believed that King Baldwin desired the Principality of Antioch for himself. This may have been part of the Patriarch Amory's suggestion, but when King Baldwin insisted, Manuel granted him an audience. King Baldwin rode out from Antioch, escorted by citizens, praying him to reconcile them with the Byzantine emperor. The interview was an immense success. The emperor Manuel was charmed by the young King Baldwin, whom he kept as his guest for ten days. While they discussed plans for an alliance, Baldwin succeeded in securing a pardon for the Armenian prince Thoros, who went through the same procedure as Reynald had done and who was allowed to keep his territory in the mountains. On Easter Sunday, the 12th of April, 1159, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel came to Antioch and made his solemn entry into the city. The Latin authorities tried to keep him away by saying that there was a plot to assassinate him, but he was not intimidated. He merely insisted that the citizens should give him hostages and that the Latin princes who were to take part in the procession should be unarmed. He himself wore chain mail beneath his robes. There was no untoward incident. While the imperial banners floated over the citadel, the cortege passed over the fortified bridge into the city. 
First came the superb Varangians of the Imperial Guard. These were mercenaries, Englishmen and Norsemen, who carried huge axes. Then the Emperor on horseback in a purple mantle, and on his head a diadem dripping with pearls. Reynald on foot held his bridle, and the other Frankish lords walked beside his horse. Behind him rode King Baldwin, uncrowned and unarmed. Then there followed the high functionaries of the Byzantine Empire. Just inside the gates waited the Patriarch, Amory in full pontificals, with all his clergy to lead the procession through streets strewn with carpets and with flowers, first to the Cathedral of St. Peter and then on to the palace. For eight days the Byzantine Emperor Emmanuel remained in Antioch, and festivity followed festivity. He himself, though proud and majestic on solemn occasions, radiated a personal charm and friendliness that captivated the crowds, and the lavishness of his gifts to the nobles and to the populace alike enhanced the general rejoicing. As a gesture to the Crusaders, he organized a tournament and made his comrades join him in the jousts. He was a fine horseman and acquitted himself with honour, but his commanders, to whom horsemanship was a means and not an end, were less impressive in comparison with the knights of the West. The intimacy between the emperor and his nephew by marriage, the king of Jerusalem, grew closer when Baldwin broke his arm out hunting. Manuel insisted on treating it himself, just as he had acted as medical advisor to King Conrad of Germany. This splendid week marked the triumph of the Byzantine Emperor's prestige, but Gerard of Latakia was right. It was prestige, not conquest, that the Byzantines wanted. When all the feasts were ended, the Emperor rejoined his army outside the walls and moved eastwards to the Muslim frontier. He was met almost at once by ambassadors from Nur ad-Din with full powers to negotiate a truce. To the fury of the Latins who had expected him to march on Aleppo, he received the Muslim embassy and discussions began. When Nur ad-Din offered to release all the Christian captives to the number of 6,000 that were in his prisons and send an expedition against the Seljuk Turks, Manuel agreed to call off his attack. He had probably never intended to carry on with it, and though the Crusaders and their modern apologists might cry treason, it is hard to see what else he could have done. To the Crusaders, Syria was all-important, but to the Byzantines it was only one frontier zone out of many and not the most vital to the empire. When the truce was concluded, the emperor and his army retreated westward, slowly at first, then faster as more alarming news arrived from his capital. Some of Nur ad-Din's followers tried to harass it against their master's wishes and when saved time, it cut through Seljuk, Turkish territory, the worst skirmishes with the Sultan's troops, but it arrived intact at Constantinople in the late summer. After some three months, Manuel crossed again into Asia to campaign against the Seljuks. Meanwhile, his envoys were building up the coalition against the Turkish Seljuk Sultan Kilij Arslan II. Nur ad-Din, deeply relieved by the Emperor Manuel's departure, advanced into Seljuk territory from the middle Euphrates. The Danish men, Prince Jakob Arslan, attacked from the northeast so successfully that the Sultan was obliged to cede to him the lands around Alpistan in the Antitaurus Mountains. Meanwhile, the Byzantine general, John Contos Stephanus 
collected the levies that Reynald and the Armenian Thoros were bound by treaty to provide, and with a contingent of Pechenegs settled by the Emperor Manuel in Cilicia, moved up through the Taurus mountain passes, and the Emperor Manuel with the main imperial army, reinforced by troops provided by the Prince of Serbia, and Frankish pilgrims recruited when their ships called in at Rhodes, swept up the valley of the Meander, the Turkish sultan had to divide his forces when Stephanus won a complete victory over the Turks sent to oppose him. The sultan Kilijarslan gave up the struggle. He wrote to the Byzantine emperor offering in return for peace to give back all the Byzantine cities occupied in recent years by the Turks to see that the frontiers were respected and that raiding ceased and to provide a regiment to fight in the Byzantine army whenever it might be required. The emperor Manuel agreed to the terms, but he kept in reserve the Sultan's rebellious brother, Shahinshah, who had come to him for protection. So to confirm the treaty, Kilij Arslan sent his Christian Chancellor to Constantinople to suggest an official visit to the Byzantine court. Hostilities ended in the summer of 1161, and the next spring the Sultan Kilij Arslan was received at Constantinople. The ceremonies were splendid, the Turkish Sultan was treated with great honour and showered with gifts, but was treated as a vassal prince. In summary, the Emperor Manuel had won a very valuable victory of prestige, and he had temporarily at least humbled the Seljuk Turks, who had been the main threat to his empire. This success brought certain advantages to the Crusaders. Nur ad-Din had not been defeated, but he had been scared. He would not attempt a direct attack on Christian territory any time soon. At the same time, the peace with the Seljuk Turks reopened the land route for pilgrims from the west. There was an increase in their numbers, and that more did not arrive was due merely to Western politics, to the wars between the Hohenstaufen and the Papalists in Germany and Italy, and between the Capetians and the Plantagenets in France. But though Byzantium was to remain for the next 20 years the greatest influence in northern Syria, its genuine friends among the Franks were very few. Meanwhile, in the kingdom of Jerusalem, the king Baldwin had seen the value of a Byzantine alliance, but the Emperor Manuel success had been greater than he wished in the Christian north and less effective than he wished against Nur ad-Din, although it had kept the Muslims quiet for the next two years. But the next event to affect the kingdom of Jerusalem was the death of King Baldwin. While he was passing through Tripoli, he fell ill. The Count of Tripoli sent his own doctor, the Syrian Barak, to tend to him, but the king grew worse. He moved on to Beirut, and there, on the 10th of February, 1162, he died. He had been a tall, strongly built man, whose florid complexion and thick, fair beard suggested good health and virility, and all the world believed that Barak's drugs had poisoned him. He was in his 33rd year. Had he lived longer, he might have been a great king, for he had energy and a far-sighted vision and a personal charm that was irresistible. He was well-lettered, learned both in history and in law. His subjects mourned him bitterly, and even the Muslim peasants came down from the hills to pay respect to his body as the funeral cortege moved slowly to Jerusalem. Some of Nur ad-Din's friends suggested to the emir that now was the time to attack the Christians, but he just returned from a long-postponed pilgrimage to Mecca, refused to disturb a people bewailing the loss of so great a prince. Baldwin and his Byzantine queen, Theodora, had no children, so the heir to the kingdom was his brother Amalric, who was to prove to be one of the greatest of the kings of Jerusalem. (laughs) 
And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the extraordinary reign of King Amalric and how Egypt became the Crusaders' new target.